If you're using one of the Bibles you snagged when you walked through the doors uh, this morning, uh, you will find that on page 672 in those church Bibles. So Revelation 21. Uh, we are in Revelation for our Advent series uh, this, this Advent season as uh, we remember as Christians the first Advent of Jesus, which is Christmas, right? When God gave the world his son, Jesus, to come and to rescue people and redeem people by shedding his own blood on a cross for us. He didn't come and just snatch people out of here, but he actually redeemed us by sacrificing his life, okay? And so we remember at Christmas time that, that Jesus came, but this Christmas season, we're actually wanting to look ahead to the second advent of Jesus that we find really at the end of our Bibles, the second advent when Jesus will actually come again. And I, I'm convinced that this is so critical, this is so important uh, that we take time to do this, okay? And I have one reason, at least this morning, why, okay? Um, I've had a massive change in my life over the last five months. Um, it's had a great effect on me and my family. Um, I never thought I, this change would come, uh, but for the last five months, I have been eating uh, vegan, okay? And uh, this, is, this is intense for someone like me. I'm like the fried mac and cheese guy. Like anything on a menu that looks the most unhealthy, that normally would have been what I would have ordered, okay? So this has been a huge life change for me, but my wife has been extremely uh, just supportive and she's made so much delicious food and I've really been enjoying it, but uh, our kids have been really affected by this as well. And so at dinner now, our kids have to eat differently. They don't just eat corn dogs or stuff, you know? I mean, they have to eat the food that, like, I'm eating, so they have to sacrifice, I guess, as well. And so many nights, uh, this is what happens. A, a, a delicious meal is set before our children, especially um, our three-year-old Gus, and he looks at it and kind of turns his face sideways and cringes a little bit, and then he will maybe push the plate away a little bit, Okay. And it's at that moment that I have to look at him and I'll say, Gus, you know, and I'll start eating. I'm like, it's so good. Try it. It really is. It's really good. Just just try it. You know, I'll take that approach. Or sometimes if I'm kind of tired, I'll just, you know, pull the dad card and be like, hey, I'm your father. This is your food. Eat it. I said so, okay? And, and from that moment on, something, there, there's always this similar response from him. And he has this question. It's like his last hope. And he says, are we going to have a treat after dinner? And if my answer is yes, he will start eating his dinner right away because there's a treat coming at the end of this meal. He has to finish it, though, to get it. And if I say no, then that's honestly a whole other story and a different sermon illustration, okay? <laughs> but you see, the, the only way that, at least in his mind, he can endure a meal that isn't like pizza or corn dogs is if he has the promise of something treaty or something delicious waiting for him on the other side of that meal, all right? This thing Gus experiences is exactly the point, I think, of Revelation and the point of us focusing on the second advent of Christ. Because Revelation can seem like a really bizarre, a really scary book to read. I mean, it's definitely not easy. You have to understand a lot of the Bible in order to understand Revelation. But, it, but it's so important to remember that this was a book written by God through the Apostle John, and it was actually given to Jesus' church in the first century as they were experiencing massive persecution, terrible marginalization at the hands of an oppressive Roman government. And this book, this, this word of God for them massively helped them endure. 
Okay? And the point of Revelation is actually then to give followers of Jesus, people like you and me, hope in the middle of very trying times of persecution and suffering. And the way that it brings hope is by showing these people and really by showing us a certain future where God will prove to be victorious over his enemies. It's like showing you and promising you the, the treat, like the dessert after you have to endure and enjoy this, this very real and necessary meal at times called life. And so I think we are no different, honestly. We, we as followers of Jesus are experiencing in many ways, maybe even for the first time in our lives, as Christians who live even in a place like America, we are experiencing, you might be feeling this, depending on where you work and where you study, an experience of marginalization, maybe even an experience of persecution, more than that, we're just living in a time in history where, I mean, no one's debating this, really. We're living in a very tumultuous season of time in general, and everyone's wondering, like, what is, what is going on? This is a pretty definitive moment here in our history. And so when things seem really chaotic all around us or really confusing, I think it's really important that we take this moment and we fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author of our faith. He's the finisher of our faith, and he's going to come again, and he's going to, to bring that faith to sight, okay? And so this morning, we get to experience this incredible vision of this sweet future that we are headed towards. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Redeemer, if you've entrusted him as your, as your Lord of your, of your life, then this is a, a treat that you will experience, even greater than that, obviously, after, after this meal called life. And so we get to see what is going to become of us as God's people, and we see two things in Revelation 21. We see this promise that God is going to make us beautiful. And we also see this promise that God is going to make us home. He's going to make us beautiful and he's going to make us home. So look, starting in verse 9 with me, Revelation chapter 21. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth Beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, 
each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Lord Jesus, I do pray that we would sit under your word this morning, that it would shape us, that it would really speak and be authoritative in our life. God, may we not posture ourselves above it. Uh, may we never do that, God. Would you shape us in the people you want to be through your word? Amen. So just like the beginning, okay, of the story in scripture, you see the same exact thing happening here at the very end of the Bible. You see a wedding, okay? In the very beginning of your Bible, you see Adam is given Eve as a bride from God. And here, we see another wedding. But this bride isn't a person. It's actually a collective people. It's people who are being given to the Lamb who is Jesus. So just, just to cue you in, whenever you see a reference to the Lamb in Revelation, especially even in really all of Scripture, it is a reference to Jesus being a Lamb who is slain being a lamb who is sacrificed for the sins of people so that we can be made right with God. That is this image of Jesus. And so there's this wedding of this lamb. And John here, he's piling up references and images from the Old Testament to describe this bride that is gonna be given to Jesus. And this image of this bride, it's not an individual person at all, actually. Strangely, it's a city. And the bride is shown coming down from heaven, this bride city is shown coming down from heaven. Now, this, this is not a statement about the rapture, if you're thinking, or the effects of how all of this is gonna play out in history. This is not a reference to an actual place or location or north-south movement or skies to the land kind of thing. No, this, this word, this phrase, coming down out of heaven, is a statement about the origin of this bride's life. It's talking about the origin of this bride's life. So just as as God formed Eve and brought Eve to Adam, so here God formed the bride of the lamb and gave her life himself, and now he's presenting her to his son, who the Bible says is the second Adam, Jesus. That's what's happening here in this story. And so here we see that the attention of these verses is really, it's on the beauty of this bride, You have these walls, these massive walls and gates and foundations and and all these, this imagery about this city and it's describing this beauty of this bride city. So you have these 12 tribes and 12 apostles that are written on this bride city's foundations and walls and the reason that it's telling you that is so that we would all know who this bride is. Who is this bride? Who's the bride of this lamb, this bride for Jesus, the son of God? Well, it's it's God's redeemed people. God's redeemed people. God's people, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, coming together as one bride. And, And guys, we are headed, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are headed towards this wedding. This is our our future. The description of this bride is glorious and brilliant, and then all of a sudden, this like angel pulls out a ruler in verse 15, okay? I mean, what's the, what's the dealio with that, right? Who, I, who in the world, you don't have to raise your hand, I won't make you do that, but I mean, who would bring a ruler to a wedding and start measuring the bride, right? Like, hopefully, if you're going to a wedding this year and you've never been to one, 
please don't do that, right? That is, that's very rude, okay? That's also very weird, okay? You wouldn't do that. And so all of a sudden, verse 15, this angel's like measuring this bride. What's going on here? Well, it turns out that this bride city is a perfect cube, and it's enormous, Okay, I was a uh, political science major and then a theology major. I was not a math major in college, okay? So I'm sure someone in here could correct my math here. That's totally fine. But if I did my math correctly, okay, the volume of this cube is equal to one-fourth of the volume of the earth. Just the, the footprint of the city alone would actually stretch from the Pacific Ocean to the great state of Iowa, Right? all the way up to Canada, down through Mexico, okay? It's, it's, a, it's a city on a cosmic scale, okay? But it's not just its enormity that, that we're being told about or that we're supposed to draw our attention to, but it's actually the shape of this city that's important. Why? Because it's a cube. Because the, the only other thing in the Bible that measures out to be a cube, guys, is the Holy of Holies in the temple, where the actual presence of God dwelled. It's the place in the temple where God and his presence was made known on the earth. So this is the place, it's the only place in the entire Old Testament where heaven and earth met. It was in this holy of holies, this crazy place where the weight of God's glory just dwelled. So, so John here is describing this city as a massive, perfect cube, and the only other thing that is a cube in Scripture is a place, the Holy of Holies, the place of God's powerful and glorious dwelling, okay? But then, John returns in verse 18, after giving us this detail, to describe its beauty again, okay? So, so think about what just happened. Verses 9 through 14 describes the beauty of the city. Verses 15 through 17, cube, right? Holy of Holies, and then the last few verses that we just read, beauty. So we have beauty, holy of holies, beauty. What's going on here? Well, the point is actually pretty clear. The people of God, you guys, this bride city is a beautiful people because of its holiness. What, what makes this bride city beautiful? It's her holiness. What, what do you think is beautiful in life? I mean, our, our passage is putting together these, these two words, holiness and beauty, and those are not words that you and I put together, I think, very often. Right? I mean, do you think of holiness as beautiful? Of, of holiness as something that's attractive? Because when we're talking about the holiness of God, it, it really is. I'm not talking about that self-righteous holier than thou holiness that you and I can often project and other people around us project where we want to separate ourselves from other people and say, I'm not like you, I'm better than you. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about real holiness that actually comes from God as the source, that is, you know, moral perfection, right? Pure love, perfect righteousness, perfect justice, true kindness, that, this description of holiness, that's beautiful, right? I mean, C.S. Lewis even once said that if we could see ourselves made holy, we would see an image so dazzlingly beautiful that we would actually be tempted to bow down and worship it. 
I mean, this is the holiness of God. This is the holiness that we will have, and it will be beautiful. So the question that we're confronted with this morning is, then why isn't it beautiful now? Why isn't it more attractive to us now? I think we often, the reason is because we can often reduce holiness to just mere rules, right? Holiness is obeying rules. Or maybe we reduce beauty to just mere outward appearance. But, but holiness and beauty is the substance of who God is, you guys. I mean, I, I've had to honestly wrestle with this question myself this week. And that is, if I don't find holiness attractive, what does that actually say about me? So, so I'll ask you, if you don't find holiness attractive, what does that say about you? And again, I don't mean holiness as self-righteous, I am better than you, I'm really just a jerk kind of thing, you know? I'm not talking about that kind of holiness. We're talking about something so countercultural, so otherworldly kind of, you know, love and peace and kindness and gentleness and humility and justice and righteousness and a love for God and other people and a desire to do what he says is true and right and good. We're talking about that kind of holiness, okay? You see, when I, when I find sin more attractive than holiness, that's not me, that's not telling me something about this flaw in, in holiness. It's not telling me there's a flaw or, you know, a defect in true holiness. It's actually saying something about a defect that's probably in me. But, but before we go trying to, you know, just like morally improve ourselves here, okay, or before we just try to start cleaning ourselves up, I think we need to realize something really important, and that's this. This beauty of holiness, if you are a follower of Jesus, is something that we actually already have in Christ. It is something that's given to us. The Bible uses the word, it's imputed to us. It is increasingly shining through us as we're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, Scripture tells us. And so this is what you're going to be someday, what's being described here in Revelation 21. But this is also, in a way, who you are already. It's an identity that's given to you. We are already this because we are clothed in the beauty and the holiness of Jesus. And so when God sees us, this is what this means, when God sees us, he sees Jesus' perfection, not our grossness, because our lives are hidden in Christ, is what it says to us in Colossians. I could put it to you this way, okay? My feet are very ugly, okay? They're very gross. And um, I came to grips with this. It's hard for me because I actually kind of like feet. I know I'm weird, okay? Not in a creepy way, just whatever. Feet are fine. All right, I'll just say that, okay? <laughs> My feet, they're ugly though, all right? And um, so let me just say, if I were to put my feet up next to you, but I had shoes on my feet, and they weren't muddy or, you know, they were clean, okay? If I put my feet near you in some way, I don't think you'd be bothered too much by that, I'm sure, right? Right, because why? You wouldn't be like, oh, your feet are disgusting. You wouldn't be thinking that, because why? My, my feet are hidden in my amazing shoes, right? These beautiful shoes that I have on, okay? And so I, I know that's a really petty example when we're talking about the, the likeness of, of Jesus here um, because my shoes are not cool in comparison to Jesus, okay? But you get the idea, okay? That, that's what our reality in Jesus is like. You might come to Jesus with all your grossness and your sin, but he washes you and then you're hidden in the shoe, so to speak, of Jesus, 
And we're being made more and more in his beauty and his holiness and his likeness to where one day when we see him, the Bible says we will be like him and you won't need your shoes anymore, so to speak. See, some of you this morning, you don't feel beautiful. You, you might feel anything but beautiful. I mean, maybe you're always concerned with your outward appearance and it's just not what you wish you'd look like. And so this concerns you. It's something you think about all the time. You're always trying to improve your outward appearance. But I hope this morning that you could see in Jesus, if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, that you are clothed with beauty that far outweighs and surpasses any outward beauty that you could ever have. I mean, someone could have just external beauty and, and inward ugliness, that ugliness is real, and that ugliness is, is f- uh, 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 an ugliness that far surpasses any outward beauty you could ever have. See, true beauty comes from Jesus. This morning, see the beauty of Jesus and know that that's, that's the direction you're headed in your life. That's true beauty. See, also, there's some of you who don't really feel beautiful because you walked in here this morning feeling so much shame, feeling so much guilt for how your week went or how your weekend went or how your month went or how your past year has been going, and you're focused this morning. You're just focused on your repeated failures and your repeated vices, and I'm here to tell you this morning that if you come to Jesus today, He speaks a a way better word over you than that word of shame that you walked in here this morning with. He clothes you in his beauty. He clothes you in his holiness. He washes you and then he hides you in the shoe. So so it's Jesus that makes us beautiful. But guys, that, that also means that in the meantime, we should live like any bride would live approaching their wedding day and cultivate that beauty. Like, all people approaching their wedding day cultivate their beauty. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I'm not, I'm not even the bride, but even as a groom getting ready for my wedding day, I won't lie. I like, this is embarrassing, actually, that I'm now going to say this. I'm committed to saying this to you. I fake tanned, like, three times, okay? <laughs> like, I was cu- trying to cultivate my beauty, okay? Um, gosh, I should not have committed to saying that, okay? Um, I just didn't want to be too pasty for our... Mexico honeymoon, you know? Um, I grew up in Montana. We don't have sunshine as much. So, anyways. But on the other hand, even Liz, my wife, like, she didn't even need to do anything. Honestly, she didn't need to cultivate any sort of beauty. But even then, on her wedding day, I didn't see her until the evening time. Why? Because all day long, she's having her beauty cultivated. She's being dressed a certain way, her hair done a certain way, her, her makeup done a certain way way and she's sitting there and she's receiving by the hands of other people this this beauty cultivation in her life. The bride has someone else do it even. But they sit there willingly and desirous of their beauty to be cultivated. In the same way, guys, Jesus makes us beautiful, but we must desire to have this beauty cultivated by him. So I ask you this morning, are we cultivating that beauty? But more than just cultivating that beauty, connected to that are you cultivating your attraction to that beauty? Are we seeing sin for the ugliness that it is and the beauty of what the character of Christ actually has? Secondly, just like any married couple, after your wedding, you start making a home, right? 
And we see next that God actually makes us home. Look in verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So John says there is no temple in this city. The temple was always where God and his people met. The city itself now is the holy of holies, right? There's no place that you actually need to go in order to meet with God. There is no separation, but God dwells with us and we dwell with God. He is by definition our temple. And all the details here in this passage make that very clear to us. I mean, notice there is no more sun to light and nurture the garden of God. Right? There's no more candles to light the temple. Those are no longer needed. God is the light. Right? There's no longer a priesthood. You're actually seeing a list here of all these deficiencies. There's this absence of all these things that you're used to seeing in the Bible. There's no outer court. Remember if in the fall I showed you pictures of the, of the temple if you were here? There's this outer court where non-Jews would come and who, who feared God and, and wanted to know him. Right? There's not even an outer court here anymore. Why? Because the nations are just coming in. They're in the Holy of Holies, right? The nations come in. So this bride actually is a multi-ethnic bride. To be honest, this isn't a bunch of white Americans hanging out in paradise. It's just not. And these nations aren't bringing tithes. They're not bringing sacrifices. What are they bringing? They're bringing everything. They're bringing all. They're bringing all they have. They're bringing all they are. They're bringing their honor and their glory, and kings are coming with their glory and their honor, and they're just humbly bringing it to God in a sense of worship. You see all this humility and this worship and this honor and access. There's no closing of the gate. Why? Well, in chapter 20, we see, if you read it uh, before this week, that Satan and God's enemies are defeated. So there's no more fear. You don't have to lock your doors at night. There's no nation that can or will come and oppose God. And so now God's redeemed bride doesn't just have entry or access to God. We have full access all the time. This is amazing. This is our future. This is the, this is the treat, right, after that often tumultuous and marginalized meal called life. I mean, I wonder, do you long? I mean long for this day. The day when God makes us home. When you get to be with God, just like unhindered, face to face. You don't even need a son. Uh, Liz and I, uh, we started dating in January of our junior year in college, okay? Summer break came, we were still together, okay? Uh, I convinced her to stay with me. And guys, I was, I'm not gonna lie, I was smitten, okay? I was really smitten, like way too smitten. Like I really did really weird stuff, kind of. And 
Um, this was back in the day. We didn't have text, so we actually, we just talk on the phone, you know, all the time. And, and uh, I actually would write letters, okay? I'm not talking email, but where you handwrite notes and you put them in envelopes with physical addresses and stamps and you give it to a mailman and they, it takes days to get there, okay? Other stuff can happen in life. It's not immediate, okay? And we would write letters to each other, right? And I just so looked forward to that. I've never wrote more letters in my life, okay? And I remember at one time even, because I was really missing her, I thought it'd be cool. This is back when I, you know, uh, uh, you know used cologne. I like sprayed cologne on the letter and I like sent it to her. And, <laughs> I was like, she really misses me, I'm sure. And uh, talking on the phone later, I, I guess I sprayed way too much because I think she had to, like, destroy the letter. It was, like, reeking up the entire house, okay? And um, I just was smitten. I missed her so much. I just wanted to be with her. And I came and visited the first time ever, Oregon. I, that's when I fell in love with Oregon, too. And uh, we hung out, and it was great. And I, I don't know if I, like, stole it from her or borrowed it from her, but she had this, like, empty bottle even of, like, this vanilla scent lotion that she'd wear. And I, like, took it with me home just because it reminded me of her smell. Like I said, I did weird stuff, okay? <laughs> and um, and uh, just reminded me of her scent, right? And I, like, held on to this, and so certain times, you know, I just get a whiff or whatever. It was great, okay? Um, right? I, I longed to be with Liz. You know, I was in love. I'd never been in love before like this. And, but the day came. Like August came when, she, when we were together again. And you know what happened? I didn't, I didn't need the vanilla scent anymore, right? I, I didn't need the letters any longer. I had Liz. I had Liz. We were together right? In the same way, I mean, the question is, do we long for God like this? Because one day, there won't even be need for a son, right? You won't even need that, because you will have God. Guys, this is our future home. But I think what's more amazing to me is not that this is our future home, guys, but that this is God's future home. Think about that. I mean, it makes sense on our end because we are God's creation. We are made for him to worship and to bring glory to God. We were made to be with God, but there is nothing that should warrant God finding his home in us, okay? The highest heavens can't even contain him. That's what scripture tells us. Yet he would dwell with us, Right, the psalmist even says, what is man that you are mindful of him? But guys, this is what God has been mindful of from the very beginning. Again, he was the one who planted the garden in the first place. He was the one that put humanity there. He was the one that gave the plans for the temple, plans that the book of Hebrews tells us were modeled after heaven itself. He was the one who beyond all hope decided to take on human flesh and incarnate himself and condescend and come down and live among us. And when Jesus left, what did he say? What did he say? He said, I'm gonna go prepare a place for you. Well, what place was that? Well, scripture says it's a place whose city and architect, uh, a city whose architect and builder is God. And so Jesus tells us that he's going to come back and he's going to bring us there. Why? He said, what? So that you may be where I am. See, this is what is amazing. Not that we make our home with God, but that God would make his home with us. 
us. He didn't need us, but he does this out of sheer grace, out of sheer love, and he planned it from the very beginning. So you don't miss this verse from this chapter, verse 3. Davey read it last week. What does verse 3 say? It doesn't say, at last, man's dwelling place is with God. No, it says, alas, God's dwelling place is with man. That is the second advent. It is the most amazing future that God is going to forever be Emmanuel, God with us. See, this is our future reality. This is our future home. But we must see the origin of this reality is happening today. The origin of this reality that you're reading about, it's actually happening right now in God's people, his church here on this earth. This community has actually already begun, right? The, the branch, other churches in Corvallis, other churches throughout this world, the Bible says we are the temple, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus dwells with us now. He has promised us this. And so we are a community of faith, you guys, joined to Jesus where the broken can be made whole and find healing. This is why we center our lives around the local church, not because the, the local church is that, all that or something, but because this is just the beginning of, of this, what you're seeing here in your Bible. As we are moving towards a, a greater reality, and inviting others to join us along the way. And, and I think it's one thing to describe Revelation 21 realities to other people as we invite them along the way. It's one thing just to describe this, but it's another thing to completely begin to show them this, to cultivate this, this reality, cultivating this beauty. It's like this, um, my kids do not care about ice hockey. They just don't, okay? And if a few weeks ago, let's just say I went up to them and I was like, hey guys, you've never heard about this sport. It's called ice hockey. This is how it works. And I described it for them. I just laid it out in perfect detail. I was like, oh, it's so fun. It's amazing. You got these sticks and the puck and you score goals and it's so much fun. And for my boys, you get to hit people and stuff, right? They might listen to me for a little bit, but at the end of that description of hockey, they'd probably be like, okay, that's great, whatever, fine, I'm gonna go back to my life, right? But the other, a couple weeks ago, I sat down and I decided, I don't know why, I was like, I'm gonna watch Mighty Ducks, you know? And I watched Mighty Ducks and I let them watch it with me, okay? And I had to fast forward some parts, but they watched it with me. And um, after that movie, I could not prepare for what was gonna happen in their life, okay? Because immediately once the movie was over, I hear this ruckus out in the garage and they're out there with makeshift sticks and balls and weird stuff and baseball plates and stuff, like actually trying to play hockey. And they played it forever. They played it the next morning as soon as they woke up and they played it for every subsequent day after that. They were hooked on hockey. Even my three-year-old is like, dad, let's play hockey and we don't even have anything. We just have our bodies in this room and we're playing hockey and he's trying to describe for me how to play along with him and I'm, I can't understand a word he's saying so I'm just trying to like, play hockey with him, but he just wants to play hockey, like he's hooked, right? We're not even playing hockey, I don't know what we're doing, um, but, but, but he's hooked on hockey. See what happened. I didn't describe hockey for them, I showed them hockey, and they got it, they were in it, right? Okay? Showing them hockey had a greater impact on them than just me describing it to them. Plus, now when I do the quack, quack, quack cheer, they know what I mean, you know, so it's a bonus, but this, this new city, this 
new people, guys, that's being described here in our passage, it's also a reality that we are to be living into right now so that we don't just tell the world about this, but so that we can start showing the world what this amazing reality is going to be like. Jesus isn't just describing hockey to us, but he's showing us mighty ducks, right? God will make us home someday, but Jesus is with us now. Guys, these Revelation 21 realities are are beauty-type things that we should cultivate and show the world. Multi-ethnic, humble, holy communities that bring all that we have joyfully to God. So my question to you this morning is this. Is this the treat after the meal that you were anticipating or being motivated by when you came in this morning? I mean, do you long to be made whole? Do you long to be beautiful? Do you long to be holy? Or are you content with surface appearances? Do you long to be home with God? Or are you busy making this life your home? Guys, we live for the things that we long for. And God will make us beautiful and God will make us home. Long for that. Long for that. Pray with me.